Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2019 Jackson Hole Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is The Road to 2020, Who Holds the Trump Card? And it was recorded on August 9th, 2019. I keep coming to these events, and I'm always asked to update my biography, and I always forget to take out the part about Bush Quail 92. <laughs> Simply for this reason, if you go to a reunion of Bush Quail campaigns, father and son ran in November elections six times. You can guess which one lost, and that's Bush Quail 92. And if you meet somebody at one of those reunions, you tell them you're on uh, BQ 92, they immediately put an L on their forehead. <laughs> so a little stigma there. But it's a pleasure to be back here in uh, Jackson Hole to answer John Cogan's question about is it easier or more difficult to speak before or after lunch. I think it's more difficult to speak after John Cogan. <laughs> it's more difficult, to get, more difficult to speak after him, Admiral Ruffhead, President Davenport, Leo Hanian. These are just all exceptionally bright, incisive people. And the remarkable thing about the Hoover Institution, Tom Gilligan could swipe out those four people for four people equally as brilliant and decisive, and then he could swap them out for four people, and four after that, and four after that, until we ran out of the fellowship. And that's what I think is unique about the Hoover Institution. I hope that you appreciate that being involved with it, just the depth of talent that we have here. So the last time I was here, I'm also returning uh, Jackson Holer. Um, the last time I was here was 2016, August 3rd, to be precise, to talk about, surprise, that election. The remarks of that speech was Trump can win, which, looking at it three years later, kind of a stupid title. Um, it's like a speech, Tom Gilligan can run a four-minute mile, which he probably can if he's coming down off the mountain with a bear behind him, right? Uh, what's that old joke, by the way, about how fast you have to run to get away from a bear? What's on there? Faster than the guy next to you. Smart audience. <laughs> uh, the point I wanted to raise with that now seemingly kind of silly headline was simply this. In August of 2016, doom and gloom prophecies for Trump. He can't win the national election. How, the, how did he get the Republican nomination to begin with? It's going to be a disaster. What's, what's going to happen in November? And my point was he could win because I was looking simply at the 10 states in that election were in play. I worked this off of 2012. In the 2012 election, Barack Obama uh, won 10 states by 6.7% or less. By the way, if you guys like numbers and like math, get out a pen and piece of paper and start writing this stuff down. I didn't have a PowerPoint for it. I'm sorry about that. The 10 states that made a difference in 2012 and would make a difference again in 2016, I thought, were Florida, Iowa, Ohio, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Virginia, Colorado, New Hampshire, and Nevada. Obama carried nine of those 10. He only lost North Carolina to Romney. Mitt Romney walked away with only 15 of those electoral votes in 2012. Lo and behold, in 2016, Donald Trump won six of those 10 states. He won Florida. He won Iowa. He won Ohio. He won North Carolina. He won Pennsylvania. And he won Wisconsin. And Michigan was more than 6.7%, but that was the other one he won. Anyway, what had been a 115 to 15 deficit for Romney among those 10 states turned into a 98 to 32 advantage for Trump in those 10 states. And my primitive math skills tell me that that was a gain of 83 electoral votes for, for Trump, and that's how you turn 206 Rom uh, electoral votes for Romney into 270-plus for Trump. So if in 2016 the question was how to get from 206 to 270 for Trump, the question in 2020 is how to keep going, how to prevent from going from 306 to below 270. 
You could get to 269, in which case it goes to the House. We'll get to that in a minute. Or 268, in which case he's cooked. But how to keep the damage minimized so that he doesn't go below 270. We'll get to that in a minute, but first let me walk you briefly through three other categories of elections that I'm following right now. First of all, the governors. Uh, 2020 is not all that interesting of a cycle for governors. As you know, they're on a different, different beat than the presidential. The big state races are in 2022, but there are a couple that I have an eye on. New Hampshire, um, a Democratic governor is running for real, excuse me, a Republican governor, Chris Sununu, John's son, is running for re-election and a strong Republican turnout for gubernatorial ties into the presidential race, so that's worth looking at. The other one I'm looking at is West Virginia, of all places, where Joe Manchin, uh, about the last remaining Democratic senator in a red state may leave the Senate and run for governor, uh, which would be a Republican pickup in the Senate, which would be nice, but he, he could do that. Uh, the more current state to look at for governors is Mississippi, which holds an election this year, this fall. The very popular Phil Bryant, Republican, is retiring. Uh, the Republican lieutenant governor is running, and so is the uh, Democratic attorney general. They both run before, so they're very well-known presences. Um, there's an interesting loophole in Mississippi law. You not only have to win the popular vote to become the governor, you also have to carry a majority of the 122 state house districts. A Democrat could win statewide in Mississippi by cleaning up in larger cities, but he or she would struggle to win uh, the majority of those 122 house districts. So you could have a case where the popular vote winner is actually declined the election, loses the election by, based on what the house districts vote. Um, this race matters to Trump in this regard. Mississippi is obviously not a swing state presidentially. Uh, if you look at the plus minus of partisan preference in states, Mississippi is about a plus 15 uh, Republican state, so that makes it very high-end like uh, Wyoming. This is a good place for Donald Trump to come visit in the fall and test a few of his messages to see how it bounces the Republican turnout. So keep an eye on the president when he does that to listen to what his message is because that's gonna be his plan for turning out the base the following year. The House. Um, could be an empty House seat here in uh, Wyoming, perhaps. A lot of intrigue there. The House uh, ratio right now is 235 to 197, so Republicans have to flip at least 20 seats to take away the gavel from Nancy Pelosi. That's a tall order if you just simply look at the history of House elections. Ronald Reagan won 49 states in 1972, excuse me, won 49 states in 1984. Richard Nixon won, uh, won 49 states in 1972. Uh, neither gentleman picked up more than six seats in the House. Uh, just no coattails there. Republicans do best in the House when there is a Democratic president to run against plain and simple. The two big giant gain year, 1994, when they picked up 52 House seats, and 2010, when they picked up 63, the biggest House gain since 1938. That's how, that's how Republicans do best. So I would not hold out very high hopes for the Republicans picking up the House unless there is a very complete doofus running at the top of the Democratic ticket, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, <laughs> But otherwise, I wouldn't bank on that. The Senate is a very interesting creature in Senate race here in Wyoming this year. Right now, the split is 53 to 47. The Democrats need to pick up at least three seats to flip it. That's if there is a Democratic vice president casting the 51st vote. Uh, 22 of those seats are Republican held and 12 are Democratic held. On paper, that's a problem for Republicans. But, but, half of those seats are safe for both parties. They're just in very strong Democratic Republican states. Maybe about five are competitive. Here are the ones you need to look at, and I assume you all either just like to dabble in these things or maybe you like to invest, but you just like to follow these things. So here are the ones to watch. First of all, Alabama. 
Democrat running for re-election, Doug Jones. He won the special election after uh, Jeff Sessions became attorney general. He's up in 2016. Republicans get that seat uh, unless uh, Mr. Moore uh, runs again as Republican nominee. Roy Moore, if he runs again. Uh, Colorado, Cory Gardner, Republican, very vulnerable. He's up for re-election. Uh, Maine, Susan Collins, she has been targeted by the left the moment she made her floor speech for Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, I would throw in two more states for you to look at. One is Arizona, which is a Republican-held seat. This is Martha McSally, the former congresswoman who lost follow the Bonsi Ball. She lost the 2018 Senate race, but then she was appointed to the seat after John McCain passed away. So now it's a contest to fill out the rest of McCain's term. She is running against Mark Kelly, who is the NASA astronaut and the wife of uh, Gabby Giffords, the congresswoman who was shot in Tucson. So that's going to be a very interesting race to watch. Then the final one I would look at is going back to New Hampshire. And there you have a uh, Democratic Senator, Gene Shaheen, facing off against what I find to be a, possibly a very intriguing Republican candidate. And that's a gentleman named J Donald Baldock, who is a retired Army Brigadier General. Here's what's interesting about General Baldock. He did 10 tours of duty in Afghanistan. Five bronze stars, two purple hearts. He was one of the uh, Army cavalrymen who rode into Afghanistan right after 9-11, the so-called uh, horse soldiers, if you will. He survived a bomb blast, a helicopter crash, and firefights. I think he could probably take on Chuck Schumer if he's in the Senate. So I think he's a strong candidate on paper. The final Senate wrinkle, by the way, this ties into the presidential, and that is Texas and Colorado. Um, Beto O'Rourke is running a campaign that borders from comical to clownish. Uh, at some point, he's going to have to look at the big picture and decide it ain't happening presidentially. Can you still vote in Texas, by the way, Tom? Uh, you gave it up for California? Why? <laughs> <laughs> so Beto, Beto has until December 9th to decide whether or not he wants to keep soldiering on the presidential. That's the filing deadline for the Texas Senate. I would advise him to think long and hard about that because he's not running against Ted Cruz. He's running against John Cornyn, who is not anywhere nearly as polarizing as Cruz. And Trump will be at the top of the ticket. And if you have Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren as your nominee, I would not want to be down ticket in that scenario. Uh, the more likely person to jump in, though, is John Hickenlooper, the Colorado senator who uh, you find on the first night of two nights of debates, uh, poo-pooing the rest of his party. Uh, there are already three Hickenlooper 2020 Senate websites sitting out there, which I think is kind of a tell. Uh, he has until next March to make up his mind. But if he gets in, that's problematic for uh, Cory Gardner because he was a popular former governor. Now what you came here to listen to, the President of the United States. <clears throat> August is a great month, I think, to be here in the Tetons. It's also a great month for presidential politics because there is no Democratic debate this month. <laughs> the next debate is not until September 13th and 14th in Houston. It's going to be a different set of qualifications for this one. You have to be at least 2% in the polls and four polls approved by the Democratic National Committee. You have to have at least 130,000 of what are called unique donors. This means I give a buck to Elizabeth Warren and I'm a unique donor. You have to have at least 130,000 of those, 20,000 of them in a handful of states as well. Right now, nine Democrats make the podium. Uh, two or three more might get in, so it's going to be a very smaller crowd. It's probably going to be a smaller audience. The high-water mark for the first Democratic debate was 18.1 million. That fell off to 10.3 million in the last debate. Again, my primitive math tells me that is a 40% decline in viewership. So familiarity does not uh, generate interest, it would seem, among the debates. What I have noticed in two debates so far is that there tend to be three avenues of attack against this president. The first one is the personal, his taxes. Um, you go against, you want to go after Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner on their security clearances. You throw around the I-word, impeachment. 
You just want to harass this man out of office. You think he's a scoundrel. He should be arrested. You question his character. He should be dragged off. It's personal politics. The second is ideas, which unfortunately the Democrats tend to delve into the world of impractical and ultimately unpopular ideas. Medicare for all polls well at first glance. Then you start pushing the question with voters and start asking them, are you willing to deal with X, Y, and Z, essentially rationed health care if you do this, and it collapses under its own weight. Um, Bernie Sanders, by the way, Bernie Sanders thinks that the answer lies in Canadian health care. You heard Leo Hanian throwing the stats out the other day. I thought to myself, if Bernie Sanders thinks that Canadian health care is the answer, he probably needs a, a mental health check. Well, it takes four weeks in Canada to get a CT scan. By the way, on that note, there's a Canadian think tank called the Fraser Institute, which every year puts out a study called Waiting Your Turn. You should look that up online, Waiting Your Turn, the Fraser Institute. It chronicles all of the delays you can expect in getting uh, health care in Canada. It's just staggering. Um, so Medicare for all does not pull, pull well. Cash reparations for slavery. Uh, it may appeal to a sliver of African-American voters in the South Carolina primary, but Gallup put it to the nation in June and July, 67% disapproval. Two-thirds of the American public do not like the idea. I would not want to carry that idea around the Midwest if I were the Democrats. So you see these ideas popping out that appeal very much to the base and sort of rather pandering these candidates to, but long-term they're problematic. So approach number one is the personal. Approach number two is the impractical. And then category number three, door number three, and let's make a deal days. Um, that is Joe Biden, who essentially is running on the issue of it's time to heal and get over this president. And I think he's on to something there, actually, and let me explain more of that in this regard. Hillary tried the personal approach in 2016. She called Donald Trump a scandal. They figured that people would just vote against him because he was a rogue, and it didn't work. Uh, the bar is set remarkably low for Donald Trump in that regard. He did famously say he could walk down Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and get away with it, but it does seem that pretty much anything that comes out negative about him, the American people is the shoulder to say meh. And then they checked their Yahoo app for the stocks that day, and all is well, so we move on. Um, the personal approach is just not the smart one, it seems, and impeachment also pulls terribly, which is why Nancy Pelosi is doing her best to try to keep that horse from getting out of the barn. Um, the ideas, you don't see Joe Biden being an ideas candidate at all. In the first Democratic debate, you might remember Chuck Todd of NBC started asking questions, asking que candidates to raise their hand. This is death, politically. And Chuck Todd knew exactly what he was doing. He said, can I see a show of hands of those of you who want to provide public health benefits to, the political correct term now is undocumented immigrants, but legal immigrants. And I think of the nine hands, nine hands shot up right away in the air. Some couldn't reach higher than others. Joe Biden, standing kind of in the middle of the stage, kind of goes up and then stops a little bit, goes up a little more and kind of stops. You can kind of, you know, two people are probably whispering, up, down, up, down, up, down. And eventually he kind of gets up to kind of like sort of, you know, sort of like the lady on the Land of Lakes butter uh, stick, if you will, just kind of halfway up in the air like that. He's kind of in. But he doesn't want to talk about big ideas in this campaign. He just wants to talk about the idea of healing the country. He's running, in essence, like a big giant bottle of Xanax. Take one of me tonight, things will be better in the morning. You'll feel much better. Here is the trick about Joe Biden's campaign and what I think is it would fascinate just from the political science standpoint. He's trying to do something that no Democrat has done before, and that's win the presidency at the sweet age of 77. Before I go on, I am not suggesting that 77 is old. Seriously, no, thanks to medicine, thanks to good health habits, somebody you know passes away at 77, and your first instinct is he or she was cheated of a few years. My father passed away a couple years at age 81, and our first thought was, 
should have lived to be about 85. So 77 is not as doddering as, as one somebody might have thought once a time, but he will be 77 in November, 78 by, by the time he would be president of elect. Um, Democrats struggled with this issue in 2016. Hillary Clinton turned 69 right before the election, and one of the problems her campaign had was they could not decide what she was at age 69. They obviously could not go to the happily married trope. That didn't quite work for obvious reasons. Uh, they didn't want her, they, the cuddly grandmother thing didn't work for some reason. They didn't want her to be the happy hip grandma bouncing on Ellen's sofa. They could never really, they thought maybe she'd be Angela Merkel, and who, who the Germans called Mutter, the mother of us all. Maybe she'd be the mother, and at which point the Republicans would probably add an adjective on top of that. So, um, <laughs> Biden at age 77 faces the same challenge. Now, we, uh, we have a colleague at Hoover named Doug Rivers, who is a uh, Stanford political scientist, a senior fellow, and he runs a company called YouGov, which has pioneered internet polling, and Doug's company polls for the New York Times and CBS News, and then he also, uh, he and uh, his colleague David Brady do a tracking poll of the same 2,000 people online. And Doug is always throwing in interesting questions, and the other day he asked uh, voters about candidates' age, and he said, you know, give me a ballpark guess of how old you think Joe Biden is. How old do you think Elizabeth Warren is? How old do you think Kamala Harris is? Kamala did very well. Kamala came in at about age 45. She turns 55 later this year. Elizabeth Warren did great. She turned 70 in June. She came back at age 60. Joe Biden, about to turn 77, turned in at 75. So if he's going to come across as a little younger, it's going to be a challenge for him. Um, if you ask what Hoover fellows do in their spare time, I decided, okay, how to really put Biden's age in context. So lightning bolt struck. Joe Biden, as a 30-year-old man, entered the United States Senate in January of 1973. So I spent the afternoon going online and digging up each and every Democratic presidential candidate and finding their date of birth. Eight Democratic presidential candidates were not alive as of early July 1973. Kamala Harris was in grade school. Kirsten Gillibrand was in grade school. Cory Booker was a uh, whippersnapper, four-year-old toddler, if you will. So there is a big generational gap when those people get on the stage. And you see this in the willingness to embrace big ideas, their willingness to approach. And Brian wants to run simply on one thing, which is electability, which makes sense in the general election, but in a primary, it's not the strongest card to play. Uh, I have, in my dirty past, also delved in the world of direct mail, helping write direct mail pieces where you have to figure out a quick hook to get your attention so you give me money. And it's an interesting project because, okay, I've got your attention very quickly. How am I going to get your money out of your pocket? Every candidate I've worked with who resorted to, I'm the candidate the Republicans fear, or I'm the candidate the Democrats fear, they said that because simply they didn't have something better to run on. So electability is not the strongest of, of things I would, uh, I would urge. Um, the other reason why the Biden at 77 issue is problematic is simply going back through the list of Democratic winning presidential candidates. If you go back to 1932, Franklin Roosevelt and move forward, and I'm just using the times when a Democrat was elected to the office, not FDR and Truman who inherited the office, you notice a pattern. The oldest Democrat in this group, this would be FDR, John Kennedy, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama, five Democrats. The oldest one of this bunch is whom? Carter. How old was Jimmy Carter when he was elected in 1976? Since you answer Carter, you tell me. <laughs> Anybody want to hazard a guess? 52. He's the old man in the bunch. Who's the baby in the bunch? No, not Obama. Jack Kennedy, age 43. Bill Clinton was 46, Obama was actually 47. So there's a pattern here. These are gentlemen between the ages of 43 and 52. 
um, pretty vigorous in appearance, with very young families, perfectly suited to talk about tomorrow, and usually running on a very large theme, a new deal, uh, even though with Roosevelt we don't quite apply this because he's running the age of radio, not television, so optics were not what they are today, but running on something big and change-worthy, like a new deal, a new frontier, hope, hope, whereas Biden is not offering this. So again, it runs countercurrent to what Democrats offer. Um, Having said all of that, this sounds like I'm about to tell you that the President of the United States, the Trump card is not really a Trump card so much as he's being dealt an inside hand, that each month without fail, and the Democrats will debate again in September and October and December and January and February, March and April and May until they decide this thing ultimately. Each month he is given the great gift of these people arguing with each other and ultimately siding on things which do not play well in the states they don't do it back. So in one hand, yes, the President has dealt an inside straight on the other hand, though, this is still an excruciatingly difficult race for him in this regard. Those 10 states I listed to you earlier, the 2016 10 states, a little adjustment I think needs to be done on them. Uh, four of those 10, I think, are safer for Trump now than they were in 2016, and they are Florida, Iowa, Ohio, and North Carolina. Uh, I know the press love to just dwell on Florida, but the fact is Republicans had a very good year in Florida in 2018 when they struggled elsewhere. They elected a senator. They elected a governor. Uh, the Republican National Committee really hardwired that state in 2016. I know they're doing the same in 2020. I would just give that state right now to Trump. Even though it'll be competed uh, for, I would still give it to him. Iowa has gone Republican in the last decade. Why Hillary Clinton decided to waste her resources there in 2016, I'll never understand. Then again, she never bothered to go to a UAW hall in Michigan in 2016, which is the equivalent of a Republican going to, coming to here and not visiting with the Chamber of Commerce. It's just where your bread and butter is, but a lot of quizzical things about her campaign. Uh, I picture Mrs. Clinton sitting and having some Chardonnay in the home in Chappaqua and just figuring out the Russians conspired against her and the world conspired against her. But the fact is, she lost the election because she made just some fundamental mistakes, that being one of them. So I would give Florida, Iowa, Florida, Iowa, Ohio, and North Carolina to Trump at this point. I would also take away three states. I think those are Virginia, Colorado, and Nevada. And I base those simply on voting patterns, recent elections. I would cancel those out. That leaves us with four states right now. Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and New Hampshire as true battlegrounds. That's 50 electoral votes, which will probably decide this election. Here's what's interesting about this. New Hampshire is not a gain for the Democrats. Hillary carried it by a couple thousand votes in 2016. Uh, if the Democratic nominee carries it again in 2020, it's not a, it doesn't take away four votes from Trump. It, it's just the same. It's Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, subtle matters. If a Democratic nominee wins two of those three states, he or she falls shy of 270. The Democrat has to win all three states. Trump can lose one of those states, even two of those states, and still get by for re-election. So that's an advantage. He has room for error where the Democrat does not. That does not mean that he's out of the woods. Uh, Herbert Hoover learned this lesson in 1932. Uh, Jimmy Carter learned it in 1980, and H.W. Bush learned it in 1992. But having worked on that campaign, let me explain to you a couple reasons why I don't see the 92 experience applying to Trump. First of all, 1991, the Bush campaign was slow to form. The president, at one point, had been up to 90% in the polls. And the re-election looked like a slam dunk. And the best proof of that was every prominent Democrat, Al Gore, Dick Carpart, Mario Cuomo, Bill Bradley, who decided not to run. They just didn't think they had a chance, so they wouldn't do it, enter Bill Clinton. The campaign formed late in the year. 
It was, uh, had a hard time getting off the ground. Bush's campaign manager, uh, Lee Atwater, had passed away from brain cancer, so there was kind of a void at the top in terms of, uh, in terms of political scheming and leadership, if you will. Uh, so it was slow to move afoot. The, the Trump campaign, on the other hand, every week, very quietly, Jared Kushner meets with Brad Pasquale, or Pasquale, excuse me, uh, who you don't see in the paper that much. Mr. Pasquale is Donald Trump's campaign manager. And I imagine that the president's son-in-law quizzes him about what have you done today to help my father-in-law get reelected. And I imagine that he relays that back to his father-in-law. That means that they have their finger on top of things. Money. The president has three campaign committees right now. If you add in what they raised, plus what the Republican National Committee raised in, uh, in the second quarter of 2019, $100 million. That is a serious take, my friends. On top of that, of that money that they raised, 950,000 of those were individual donors, 98% of them under $200, which means they can come after them time and time and time again. This is how Bernie Sanders' campaign stays alive. He has a vast network of people giving him small amounts of money. It takes a long time until you max out. So Trump will not suffer for money here. Second factor that plays in, check my watch here, I don't want to keep you from the wine. Um, the president is engaged in ways that 41 wasn't. Uh, 41 was a saint. Um, and you can tell that by just talking to people who work for him. It's true for the son also. I've yet to meet somebody who worked for either Bush father or son who had a bad thing to say about the men. They're just very good, decent people who would take a personal care of your lives. They're just extraordinary in that way. Now, I'm glad to see that George W. Bush is getting the recognition he deserves on that front now for that. Uh, but in 1991, Bush 41 was not interested in running for re-election. He wanted to run for re-election. He wanted another term. But he was just not into the idea of campaigning. Dorothy Parker, the, the writer, had the great line, I hate writing, but I love having written. And I think for 41, it was the same. I hate I hate campaigning, but I love having campaigned. I have a friend who was, a, was an advanced guy for him in 1998, and in the 98 strategy, um, they uh, decided to go around to uh, state fairs across the Midwest, and the vice president, then Vice President Bush, just got rather tired of this rather fast because it's meeting the kind of the same people in the same places, eating the same corn dogs, and standing out in the same oppressive heat. And the last one they did in Illinois, they did, and they got on the plane, and, and the advanced guy said to does a, said to the future president, sir, wasn't that a great event? Was that a great event? And the president turned to him and he said rather basically, F the farmers. <laughs> I've had enough of this. Um, 41 did not enjoy campaigning that much, and uh, it showed. Working on the Bush campaign, we had this brand spanking new technology called satellite television, which allowed us to do what we called actualities, which meant that the president could sit in the Oval Office or some part of the White House, and we could do five minutes in Hartford, Connecticut, and five minutes in Los Angeles, and five minutes in Jackson Hole. The president, A, did not understand what we were doing. B, fought it, like getting your two-year-old in the, in the barber's chair to get his hair cut. Just did not enjoy doing it because I think that he figured there are more important things in the world, like solving financial crises and the collapse of um, the Soviet empire and so forth. So 41 was not engaged. Trump has been engaged from the moment he was sworn in. Not a week goes by where you don't see him doing something that is state-related, where he's either campaigning in Michigan or Florida or Ohio. He is going to West Virginia, even though that state is a slam dunk. He's doing that just to bang the drum to remind other people via Fox News of why they voted for him in the first place. He understands that. But he also understands that the key to winning the presidency in this day and age is nailing your opponent before you nail you. Bill Clinton in 1995 does a brilliant job of linking Bob Dole to Newt Gingrich and having believed that these two gentlemen will absolutely destroy the safety net in public government. So it's Newt Gingrich on the ballot as much as nice old Bob Dole in 1996. In 2000, it's an open race. It doesn't really apply. In 2004, they're running for re-election. It is George Bush showing John Kerry windsurfing. 
off Nantucket and saying, how can you trust this guy? Brilliant ad, one of the best ads I've seen in a long time. In 2012, it's having you believe that Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan are going to destroy the safety net again, and thus you have the commercials of Paul Ryan pushing an old lady in a wheelchair off a cliff. You define your opponent before your op opponent finds you. We may find things like sleepy Joe Biden and, and uh, Hiawatha and things like that to be humorous and maybe in some levels juvenile, but he is trying to characterize his candidate before they characterize him, and it's smart politics. The final thing that I think Trump gets that other presidents don't, he is very, very good at setting traps, I think. More credit, uh, he deserves more credit than he deserves. How many of you remember the flap that occurred when Trump announced he wanted to do a military parade for the 4th of July? Yeah, Washington melts down. Oh my God, what a ridiculous amount of money being spent. I think John Cogan just showed us what the budget situation is in Washington. Uh, how can we spend this money? He wants to run tanks down Pennsylvania Avenue. He's a fascist, he's a dictator, he's Mussolini with a bad haircut, and on it goes. Um, and guess what, if you tuned in on July the 4th and watched it, what did you see? You saw a parade, you saw a flyover, you saw American hardware, and it made you feel pretty good about the country. So now, if you've spent the past couple weeks railing about this president's excesses, you look pretty stupid. And time and again, Democrats just take the bait, they fall in the trap. The moment Donald Trump says something, they have to go 180 degrees, the opposite direction, at full throttle against him, it doesn't work. The final thing that I think Trump understands is, as much as we talk about presidential politics and being national elections, it's not a sum election. It is about the parts of the sum, not the sum itself. Trump lost the national vote in 2016 by 2.869 million votes, a lot of votes. Bush in 2000 lost by only 543,000 votes. Trump lost California by 4.27 million votes. You add in New York, Illinois, and Massachusetts, and his deficit runs to six and a half million votes. So he does very well in the national election in 46 other states, but he gets creamed in those four particular states, and so therefore he is shy in the national vote. Bush managed to win a majority of votes in 2004, in part because he widened his lead in Texas by over 300,000 votes, and also he closed the New York margin by 352,000 votes. Obviously, New Yorkers more sensitive to 9-11, like the president more in 2004 than they did in 2000. What Trump understands is we can look at the sum of 136 million people who voted in the last election, but the 136 million doesn't matter. What matters is about 80,000 votes when you get down to it. That's the 2,736 vote difference in New Hampshire. That is the 10,700 vote in Michigan, the 22,700 vote in Wisconsin, the 44,200 vote difference in Pennsylvania. Those latter three states, that's 77,000 votes total, or about 80,000 overall out of 136 million. It's a fingernail on a man's body, if you will, but that's what decides the presidency. 80,000 votes, folks. That's about the combined population of Casper and Laramie. That's how small of a margin is nationwide, but that'll decide things. Uh, a final comment here, and I'll get to the questions, and then more importantly, we'll get to the wine. And that is this. It is very easy to sit back and watch the Democrats thrash around in their debates right now. And yeah, it's fun to watch. Uh, it's fun to watch Marianne Williamson. Um, I'm sorely tempted to go online and click on her and try to boost her numbers just to get her on stage. Life is more interesting with her than without her, than like I say, sadly, as a Californian, I, I've met a lot of Marianne Williamson's over the year. <laughs> She is not unique in that regard. Um, but the Democrat situation is not unique either in this regard. Elections are supposed to solve matters. Somebody wins, somebody loses. Somebody wins by a healthy margin, somebody has a mandate. Somebody now can go do big things. Ronald Reagan wins 44 states in 1980. He picks up the Senate, it's now Republican. He doesn't pick up the House, but by dint of a wide margin of victory, a lot of states and Republican senators, he now has the bully pulpit. 
and a Democratic House has to go along with him on tax cuts. So that's what an agenda does. Barack Obama, elected in 2009, wins by a large margin, popular votes, and it has large margins in the House and the Senate. He does Obamacare, he does the stimulus. The 2016 election is unique in this regard. You can't really claim a mandate. Even though Republicans win the presidency and they retain the House, Trump loses the popular vote. That undercuts the mandate message. But on top of that, if you consider the nature of the election, John Cogan's heard this analogy, so bear with me, John. I view the 2016 election as two people in full pads playing football. And they collide at midfield at high speed, and it's helmet-to-helmet contact, and they both stagger off the field, their respective sidelines, dazed and confused with concussions. And that's what you're seeing right now with the Democrats. They're in concussion protocol, if you will. They're having an identity crisis. They don't know who they are necessarily. They don't know what they believe. You have the spectacle of candidates running for president, throwing under the bus a man who was twice elected president, and Barack Obama, disavowing Obamacare, if you will. They don't know if they're socialists. They don't know if they're moderate or something in between. So you see this drama playing out. But a word of caution to those who enjoy seeing this happen. It's coming the Republicans' way as well. Trump is on the ballot in 2020. Now, unless we go to a very, very far-fetched scenario in which he loses in 2020 and decides to health that I'm running again in 2024 just to prove everybody wrong, and I wouldn't totally rule that up because a large MO of what Donald Trump does is proving what can't be done, part of the rationale I think behind running in the first place. But barring that, it's the last time Donald Trump was on the ballot. So what happens the night of the 2020 election, the day after? Republicans start showing up running for president in 2024. And the good news for you is a lot of them are going to be coming through these parts, all auditioning to be the next president of the United States. So here's the question. How many of these Republicans are going to listen to Gary Ruffhead and listen to him on what he has to say about military strategy and trade? How many of them are going to listen to John Cogan and talk about entitlements and the need to deal with the budget? How many of them listen to Dave Davenport and talk about a better way of governing? And that's the question Republicans moving forward, really, what is the identity of the Republican Party? Democrats have learned painfully in the past few cycles that Barack Obama cannot be imitated. The president himself found it's out the hard way. Barack Obama went on the campaign trail in 2010 and begged and pleaded for people to vote for candidates who he said supported my agenda, and he was sadly rejected. And he went out again in 2014 and said, vote for this candidate, he or she supports my agenda, and he was sadly rejected. And he went out in 2016 and said, vote for Hillary, she's an extension of me, and she was rejected as well. Obama cannot be replicated in that regard. And Democrats are now starting to realize this. That Obama has unique ability to bring out the Obama coalition of Democrats, millennials, minorities. Other Democrats struggle to do this. So maybe that formula doesn't work. But I get back to this idea of the two parties in the, in the struggle in this regard. Bill Clinton came along in 1992 in addition to screwing up my, my immediate plans. Uh, Bill Clinton was a very smart man and realized that our party had a problem, and the party was simply this. It had run in 1980, 84, and 88 with very flawed candidates, and in the process, they lost 133 of 150 states. I think we can agree that there's a problem when you lose 133 out of 150. So Clinton came to a conclusion, a very smart one. I'm going to steal the other guy's act. So now he runs on welfare reform. You saw Leo Hanian's quotes that he pulled today. A Democrat would be laughed off the stage if he or she used those lines in a speech today. But he appropriates welfare reform, and he appropriates middle-class tax cuts, and he says, heck yeah, I'm a governor of Arkansas. I throw the switch on death penalty whenever I want to. And he, in fact, he, he uh, executed a mentally impaired man while he's running for president. Not that the two are connected necessarily, but he showed that he was, and his logo was, a different kind of Democrat. No Democrat has run like that since. Hillary tried to a little bit, but Hillary actually had to run away from her husband, more so than run with his policies in 2016. She spent a lot of her time apologizing uh, for, for votes that they had then. Um, 
But you see, Republicans are very much the same boat in this regard. I have this working theory that the Republican Party has just never replaced Ronald Reagan. I don't think it's ever replaced Ronald Reagan romantically in terms of just how larger than life Reagan was, how easy he made it look, just how great he was. John pulled out that great quote of Reagan. There are a million of those, and just Ronald Reagan's a gift in that regard. Uh, Bob Dole comes along in 1996 running uh, as the next Reagan, if you will, and he famously says, I'll be Ronald Reagan if you want me to be. Um, not a very smart thing to say. He is sent to the sidelines. And George Bush comes along in 2000, uh, and he offers a different Republican philosophy called compassionate conservatism. And now we have the beginning of the intellectual move away from Reagan's conservative, but really the Gingrich conservatism. And I'm going to, and I'm going to talk about No Child Left Behind and faith-based initiatives. And that shift for the Republican Party lasts not even nine months. The 9-11 attack occurs, and now the Bush presidency is a foreign policy, national security, war and terror presidency. The domestic agenda is pretty much washed away, if you will. After George W. Bush, John McCain comes along. He is a placeholder. Mitt Romney comes along. Mitt doesn't really offer a philosophical change for Republicans. It is Trump who comes along in 2016 and does offer a philosophical change, Trumpism, if you will. But here's the question, folks. Can Donald Trump be replicated? Can Donald Trump be repeated? Should he be repeated? Can a Republican win nationally who has Trump's views on immigration, who texts like Donald Trump was, who goes against the war against the media like Trump does, or Republicans who have to find something new? So that, to me, is what fascinates about this election. It's not just about Trump winning or losing, but it's also that night of and the day after the election, what comes next, not just for Trump, but both parties could be in this search if the Democrats lose again. So I have droned on long enough. I'd like to get your questions, and I want to get you outside of the patio. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.